Welcome to Technology Tangents. We get leaders together to discuss the important tech of today and the implications for tomorrow. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated, but hopefully gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. As always, Jason Goth. How are you, Jason? Hey, Vincent. I'm doing well. As almost always, Kevin Erickson. How are you, Kevin? Doing great. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely glad to have you. I think we're going to do something a little different today. Uh, I went ahead and spent zero time preparing. How is that different? (laughs) (laughs) Instead of five minutes preparing. It's five minutes versus zero. That's a big difference. And that's infinity. Basically, I I normally prepare infinity times more than I did today. So you're welcome. This will be a great one. But I really want to pick up on this topic on a text chain thread, Jason, that you had, which is really about developers. Because some reason you care about developers. I I keep telling you, just data scientists. Don't worry about it. Developers. And really the core question, I think, is something around, are developers going away? Is the career, is the profession, is the job going away? Is that right? Is that your question? Well, I think what we were talking, we've talked about that a lot here. Um, I think my answer to that is no, it may change and be different. But I think what I was trying to get at on the text thread was more about the practices within development, specifically the the process of development in general. My question was, what is testing and not testing? So uh, let me back up real quick and just give a quick example of how this came about. As you and I were talking last week, we were working through a prototype of a solution that would automatically generate data pipelines, right? So we were, that was something we were working on. The business user could go and, and you know, ask a question, do something within the, uh, the, the system. And if that data wasn't available, it would go out and search through the data catalog and, you know, which this company has and, and understand if it did have that data, try to automatically bring that in. And so in that context, the question that I came up was, do we let it do that? In other words, typically what we would have done in the previous pre-AI machine learning world is someone would have gone and written that import, pulled that data in and modeled it and pulled it in. And then we would deploy that to some test system and someone would go in and test it and say, yes, we knew all the inputs. We, we checked to see that after, you know, we ran some reports and uh, to get like sums of different fields and those kind of things. We imported in, we validate that those are right. We know our imports working right. Then we'll deploy that thing to production, right? Once we've validated it. Now we're saying like, we're going to let the system do it essentially in real time. Well, is it right? If that's the case and someone asks for this and we go build it in real time, It deploys it, you know, we're using an AI to generate some type of solution. Well, do we test it? Yeah. So it's really about like that promotion process of CICD, which is developers go develop an environment. They like it. They push it to test. QA Mm -hmm. picks it up, runs a bunch of test code, plays with it, does other stuff. And then we push to prod. In this new world, you're saying, does that test environment even exist? Is that right? Well, yes. And my uh, position on the developer thing has always been, yeah, there's a lot of things that developers do besides write code. One of them being do testing, performance testing, you know, ensure uh, scale and high availability and all these other things. And your position has always been, well, the tools will learn to do that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, well, if that's the case, like, at, and, and you're right. I'm saying if you're right, I'm uh, not I was saying, saying you're I right. I win. I was in the pod right here. We're done. This is the best yeah. pod ever. Saying, you're if welcome. that's correct, and what it looks like in the future is that business users just say, I want to go do this, and the tools go and build it, do they still go through that testing process? And if not, then does testing look more like an experiment in production 
and we have many experiments in production and we let the experiment determine if it is something we want to then keep using. So does the whole paradigm of development shift into this more experimentation? And then what's the appropriate level of experimentation or segmentation of experiments from actual results? Like, you know, if you're building a report and you have something generate a new report, okay, that's fine if that's wrong. If you're building software that recognizes something in the road and breaks your car, you know, you have a different threshold. So what are the the thresholds around where we would allow that to happen? And then what are the, and then how far do we go down the fully automated path uh, of those different experiments? I don't have an answer, just to be clear. I just, it, it, it's the topic that, you know, as we were working through this, that, that popped up, I'm like, well, does this change the entire way we approach building software? And, and my answer is, I think for some... <laughs> Wait, I thought you didn't have an answer. I knew it. Consultants uh, uh, always uh, yeah, have yeah, to, they yeah, say, I don't true. have the answer, but they always have the answer secretly. Yeah. I knew it. What's yeah. your answer? I, I don't have an answer. Well, my answer is it depends, <laughs> right? Which is the church traditional <laughs> consulting answer to everything. It depends. It's like, I think in some cases that may be acceptable. In some cases, it may not be acceptable. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost certain that is correct, which is it'll probably depend on what is the outcome if you get it wrong. So so in sort of statistical speak, we'd say something like, what is the cost of the type 1 and the type 2 error, right? The, the hypothesis of if I do this thing, to your point, if somebody dies, if I get the answer wrong, then I better be really careful. If somebody just doesn't happen to click on my ad, if I get it wrong, well, I'm more interested in the efficiency that I can get from that. I think the other part here, though, is in my mind, software companies have moved out of the world of traditional test as described already. If you think about companies like Microsoft when I was there, you know, I don't want to say how old, long, how old I am, but more than a decade ago, I'll put it that way, more than a decade ago, we had a whole division, whole discipline called test, test engineers. While I was there, they actually eliminated that. Their position was, look, we don't actually need people dedicated to being test engineers anymore. What we need are developers to write the appropriate test and validate their code themselves for a bunch of reasons. One of which is that experimentation should be the ultimate test. And of course, that was the core of what I had spent a fair amount of time working on was that experimentation platform. So when a dev checked in code, it would automatically pick it up and roll it out. And we wrote it intelligently and very thoughtfully, which is like a very small percentage at first. We'd look for major regressions. If there weren't any, we'd roll it to a larger percentage. And any moment we saw a major regression in that across a variety of core metrics, we would instantly roll it back to zero and notify the team. And so that did become our ultimate test, if you will. We'd put it in production. What did users do? Yeah, and I think clearly a lot of the the leading tech firms, Google, Microsoft, they've been developing that way, like you said, for, for a while now and, and taking a different approach to test. You know, most enterprises, most of our customers, big Fortune 100, 500 companies, they don't approach it that way. Right. No, I and, agree. and your point is right, which is like they're going to have to change because the way we, the alternative doesn't exist anymore. There's going to be a big shift and a big change. And I, I think that it is the introduction of a lot of these AI tools, which is going to be a forcing function for it. Because you won't be able to get the, I guess the, another way to look at it is you can continue with the traditional way we've always built systems. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't, but you can. But if you're going to introduce AI, you won't be able to. If you want to get the benefits of the AI, because ultimately what it generates, if you want to get the the speed to market and, and value of having it generate something in, in real time, then it's going to have to be tested right by actual end users. Yeah, I think that's right. And I guess like I'd be curious, Kevin, from your perspective, I mean, you ran an account of ours where we really sort of changed the way they work doing exactly this. It was for offers specifically and how their sales team operated. What sort of challenges did they come up with as they were getting to the space of 
how do we start integrating AI into our processes? Because it did require a different way of working, I think. Is that right? Can I ask you, add one follow-up to that question for Kevin? Just pile on. We'll yeah, give him like 15. On. Yeah, which is the other, I think, challenge it really creates is the way things typically happen in big companies is from a budget perspective is like budget for an initiative and you go build that initiative and launch that initiative on time with your budget versus like, well, we're going to try a bunch of experiments. We'll see which ones work. Give us some money. To be honest, what I'm thinking about is all my misspent youth and my first consulting experiences where I wrote test scripts and how that was all for naught and what that's going to look like. You know, I think it's an interesting question. I find myself listening, listening to you both thinking about, you know, how do we change how we write software? How do we think about what does it mean for our processes investments? I'm also thinking about, and we're seeing this now in the popular press right now, where the legal profession is trying to figure out how they're going to play in this game around you know, generative and what that looks like. And so how are companies going to do risk management associated with this, which has been an, another reoccurring theme on this podcast, because it always comes back to what that looks like. Well, to that point, by the way, did you guys both see the new Microsoft release on this? So so we've talked before, and Adam was on our, on our podcast talking about the legal implications of strict liability for copyright infringement. Microsoft just said they're going to automatically indemnify all their end users. So if you're using their software to generate some script and you get sued conceptually for whatever intellectual property violations, they're going to they're going to assume that risk. They're going to indemnify you. And so it really changes the game from that standpoint. Um, but anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, fascinating. Now I really don't remember the original questions, <laughs> but yeah. What did the change yeah. of process and especially budgeting? Well, I think in the, maybe go on the budgeting piece, or in this case, at least for the client, you know, specifically to that experience, it was really around you know, how, how you push offers down, who, what's, what's the different allocations, what's the autonomy you're giving you know, an individual person to be able to make that, use their own abilities to work through it. I was reading a slightly different take, but I was reading something last night around just the, the original theory of self-automated driving cars and how it's going to reduce the number of accidents, right? Classical use case. It's been around for a decade plus, but still thinking about what's going to be the human adoption of that and the resistance to that. And I think that you see that in this space as well. So we're going back to my specific client experience. Their challenge was not so much the corporate organization, the, the senior leadership. It was actually individually at the people making offers who were getting incentivized and paid for what they were doing, believing that they knew better than yeah. the machine. And no matter how you tested that, no matter how you ran through that with increase in revenue, it was still working through that. In some ways, in those type of scenarios, you know, I think the little tests and how you play through that is going to be very similar to how I think how you talk about software rollout and what you continue to do that. And I think you're going to round, you're going to find uh, some employees that uh, want to use that, understand that, or they're going to go away at the testing department. In that case, I think that was the ultimate result. Like you ultimately find that you can do your automatic testing and have your offers continue to evolve and not have to worry about really your employees anymore making that individual decision. And it's cheaper because you don't have to you don't have to pay the machine incentive. You just got to give it some electricity. Uh, yeah, the well, I think that that goes to the point of you know we talk about this a lot, Jason. Around one of our core principles is human centered design, and I think you you see it here come to life, which is salespeople are often commented directly on their productivity and what you, their biggest lever, no doubt, historically has been I can negotiate and change the offer in real time based off my experience and tuition. And what you see is they're actually maybe not the best at that, frankly. They're pretty good at giving the customer the lowest possible price they can. And in, in that way, I suppose you're maximizing the likelihood they convert, which is what you're paying them on. But it's not actually the best for the business. I think as you remove that biggest lever for them, I mean, that's very difficult, of course. Yeah. And I don't know if there are any, to your point, like as you think about the testers historically or developers taking over that function, if you remove this big thing where you say, Look, I'm going to evaluate you as developer on how well your code performs. 
one way you can ensure your code performs is writing really good test coverage. You document your code well, you write great test cases, you validate it, everything runs, you have no sev1 errors, right? Nothing hits production where it crashes and you get yelled at because you wrote bad code. If you remove that, the incentives now must change too, or do they? What happened in that case? What I find for me is going, going into this a little bit goes around. I find myself to be more on team statistician versus team developer on this particular topic. But with the risk management really being the area where I pause, because to me, it makes a lot of sense. We run things in production, run it small, test it, see what happens. How do you continue to work through that? You know, that clearly works in a content publishing or a commerce type solution. I mean, how that plays out in your normal company, as I've also I've often said in this program, I think is that things are just continuing to evolve. So this is just one more element of that. We think about testing and you know, we've both, we've all three of us have been doing this for multiple decades now. So we wrote test scripts, then we automated test scripts, then we had this happen. Now this is just the next iteration of that, you know, that testing is going to happen in a different way. Because I mean, I struggle with the idea of in in a generative way, how does a developer create an environment that allows them to understand how to appropriately test it? That's the part that to me is kind of an interesting around what is accurate anymore. You know, I, mean, I think that's going to be an interesting question for us to really address with. And I think that in some ways we're just accepting that there's going to be a degree of fallacy in everything that we're doing, which has already happens today. And you know, maybe there's going to be certain things that you have to have that accuracy. You know, there'll be the testing environments that support that. But for most of how we do things, whether it be in our companies, employees, consumers, we're going to have to have a little bit of fudge factor that frankly has always existed. We just didn't know about that because it was just, you weren't have the specificity. I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like no human is perfect and we all make mistakes and even the best systems design inevitably fails sometimes, maybe exceptionally rarely, but they still fail. And so to me, the, the new thing here is not that we're introducing error to the system. It's that we're actually measuring and quantifying and being aware of the, of sort of consciously choosing what air we will accept. Yeah, I think that's a better way to think about it is what we'll accept. You know, what error rate will you accept on, you know, your banking transactions, right? Where they the bank charges you more than what you actually spent on the thing on your credit card. I'm going to guess that the answer to most people's is zero. <laughs> they don't want that to happen ever. That's, that's one set of tolerances, if you will. And then there are others. I, I think what you said, though, is key. And this was when I asked the budgeting question I was trying to, to lead to this is, you said if if it's small enough, it's fine. And that I think is the key, is making things small enough. Like a really, really small change is unlikely to blow up everything. And it's easy to measure, right? But if I put six months worth of code that has 150, 200,000 lines of code changed in the last six months and put that in, there's no way to know what possible impacts that might have, right? And so we want to, you know, it's something we always tell people is like, break things up into small deployments and they say, how small? And I say, how comfortable small are you going? And then go smaller than that, right? You're like, get really uncomfortable in, in how big they are. But that is just not the way people are used to working because the way they used to work is they have to go to get budget. And to get budget, they have to promise they're gonna do these 50 things, right? And it's gonna be, when is that? when are those 50 things gonna be done, right? So that I can tell my customers when those 50 things are gonna be done. And so this is taking the idea of agile or lean to a very much extreme, right? And it, it's the it's not that I, I don't think software developers and technologists and the platform engineering teams and the data teams and everyone else can figure out how to do it. I think they can even figure out like what's appropriate to do it on versus where they need some more, you know, tests. It's like, is that way of working 
you know, have an impedance mismatch with the rest of the way that rest of the organization works. It's an interesting question around, you know, think about if I'm, what are you agreeing that you're going to get done and how you contract on that? And it's, like, pop, we, pop. we don't know. We're going to try a hundred things and yeah. we'll see which ones work yeah. is your answer, right? Well, like, it, it could be that, or that could be how you do it. And what you're saying is you're, we're going to work through an iterative solution going off these hypotheses. And it's actually, in some ways, it makes it a little bit, uh, it actually is honest about there is a little bit of gray in what we're trying to do and we're in your selling and you're committing to you know, an approach, a hypothesis, and you're going to test it. And hopefully the tools are going to make those tests go faster. It goes back to when are we actually ever going to guarantee what you're going to get done? But uh, it's a good question to think about um, as someone who sells uh, solutions. And in some ways, I actually feel like it could be easier because you're going to be able to acknowledge the fact that uh, you're selling the approach and that would lean, I think, into the way that we do software development and solutions today. Yeah, it really, yeah, for me, if I continue to think about it slightly, at least where my mind goes, and again, similar themes that we all kind of revert back to, but it really is around, it's around the question of of absolutes and what we're really into saying, you're going to do what you're going to get done. And then hopefully how much risk are you willing to take and going some of the same things I've been reading and thinking about, I don't know why this has been in my in my thought process recently, but thinking about what was the risk it took to have people go to the moon? Could we have someone go to the moon today, right? We've got, you know, India just landed a lunar. you got other elements of the moon in the back. You think about it today, we have so much more knowledge, so much more computer processing power today than we had 50, 60 years ago. Would we even begin to attempt what happened? And what was the risk that we assumed? And what do we assume that people would be able to figure out? And I think that's what's interesting around this. We get so hung up around with the information that we know that has to be so accurate. And I'm like, at some point, Life's inherently risky. I would phrase that question a little differently, which which is, would you go to the moon today if you were constrained to use only the technology that existed in 1969? <laughs> I don't well, think many people would. No, but I think that's the fascinating part. I think you're right. Most people wouldn't. The question is, even with the advances in technology, would people do it today? I don't know. because It's an interesting point, which is like, have we become societally and individually more risk adverse? Are we, you didn't look at, playgrounds right this is a great example like if you look at the playgrounds of the 50s or the 30s like they were inherently dangerous contraptions where sharp metal objects were bound to impale you at some but point I, at the 70s they were still that way like <laughs> go play over by the broken nails and glass jason you know <laughs> right and and again there was some sense of just resilience that came and was assumed that we have through technology removed we could do better today than we could then but is it still too much today. I don't know. That's interesting. What would you say from a corporate standpoint, have corporations become equally sort of risk adverse? I don't know. I'm not a good way to yeah. measure that, to be clear. Yeah, I don't know either. And, and what is, and well, and where my where I initially go when you ask that question, Vincent, is how much is an organization and a leadership team become risk adverse versus, you know, it goes back to risk management and, and you know, litigation, fear of things that are outside, fear of regulation, fear of all these different elements. I mean, I think it's actually, I think we spend more time on those components than we do in actually bringing a product to market, service those elements. And there's reasons why we got to this. I mean, it goes, even going back to simple, oh, say a statement here that y'all can cut out if we don't want it. But like, to me, it's a little bit interesting around what is the purpose of OSHA today? And we know what it was originally purpose was, is we had people dying in plants. You know, you know, you don't have that happen as much today. And you've got mechanisms to make sure that if there's bad practices that led to that, that that can be published or can be very much seen. But yet the compliance associated with what we do and the dollars that we spend around that, I think it's an interesting question of like, 
you know, what is a company doing for its own best interest in the terms of how you, you serve your public, your consumer, whatever that may be, versus what you have to do to make sure that you do it without having the risk of something coming back against you. And I don't know what the right line on that is. I, for my personally, I feel like we've come too far where you know, we're trying to protect against every single negative thing that could happen. And, and if we don't do it seen or unforeseen, we're going to be held accountable to that. And it becomes a, a lot of negative uh, energy spent within the economy. So we just got flagged as misinformation, I think, and YouTube, Spotify, <laughs> things coming. No, but uh, but I, I agree. There are a lot of things that we do that are, I have a lot of clients, for example, want to do an active, active solution across two clouds, two regions per cloud, two clouds, two regions of the country. And, you know, that's a very expensive solution. And, um, you know, to get seven eight nines of availability like do you really need seven or eight nines of availability like what what are you doing here and some of that is just people are you know any downtime that there's you know they feel like their job's at risk so to speak and so well i think it just comes back to this original point you're making which is there's this implicit assumption that everything's gotten so good that we can't actually fail and we're not willing to admit that in fact we still fail like to the point if you look at cloud providers Many of their locations, despite using two different cloud providers, many of their colas are actually in the same building. So actually, you're not actually increasing resilience at all, really. You've just co-located and incurred a lot of costs. But the point is, we don't quantify it today. And as we begin to quantify these things, I think people are going to have to be more realistic about the risk that's inherent in the system when we didn't measure it. Even if you build it East Coast, West Coast on two different platforms, that complexity in itself, I think, generates more of a possibility sure. of failure than than just one of the the zones failing themselves right and yeah. that's you know but there are other issues you know security is another topic people you know that that's one where like how much security is is enough no one wants to spend money on security until they get hacked or something bad happens and then the answer is like well why didn't we protect against that and so then the antibodies kick in of like well we're going to protect against every threat vector we can think of but again, I think if you look at those and make a risk, based, like how likely is this? What's the impact? You know, that's one of the reasons why I, I think zero trust is a great idea. In principle, a lot of people are, are looking at it. It's only you know, only experts need to ski there, right? A kind of double black diamond approach. And and it, it does make a lot of assumptions that like nothing even internally can be trusted. Like, And then sometimes that's appropriate, but then sometimes it may be overkill. We just don't have good training and our brain isn't, intrinsically wired to do probabilistic reasoning. It's just not great. And so the challenge is that we are now asking people to make probabilistic decisions explicitly day in, day out. And I think it's going to be a massive challenge. I remember when I was at Uber, we were launching scheduled rides. Again, the fascinating thing about scheduled rides is that it shouldn't be possible. It violates every business assumption, technology assumption we have, which is that drivers are on demand, rides are arbitrary. Nobody has to accept anything. And so how do we guarantee that some driver at some point in the future will be at a specific location and accept that specific trip? You can't. I mean, you theoretically cannot do that. So instead we use probabilities and we say, well, what's the likelihood somebody will? There will be a random average driver who has this random average acceptance rate. We don't know on any flip of the coin that it'll be heads, but we know on average we'll get 50% and we can change those odds to only accept trips where 90% or 95%. But here was the challenge that I then faced very explicitly with that product manager. I said, what is the reasonable acceptance rate? Like how often are you willing to accept failure? We accept a trip. You're going to the airport tomorrow at 5 a.m.? Great, Kevin. We're going to pick you up. We know we can't actually guarantee that. So is 95% good enough? Is 90% good enough? Does that be 99%? 
The answer from the project manager was like, no, no, we need to be 100% certain. I said, well, I can't do that. I just can't. I mean, the, to your point, Jason, like historically, even if I said in real time, a driver accepted, the whole system could fall over theoretically and they wouldn't be able to find their way to you. So it's not even 100% in the They're going to have a flat case. tire. That's right. Again, so we have all these inherent risks that we just weren't measuring in that way or thinking about in that way. But now you have to ex ante before you do anything at all. You have to decide what is an acceptable failure rate. And that's really hard, I think. Yeah, it, it is because we forget. I mean, again, I'm old enough that uh, I remember uh, having a 6 a.m. flight on a Monday morning and figuring out, well, what's the likelihood a cabbie's going to drive back my my street in Chicago at 4.30 in the morning? And then you would have that probability of how much time you had to leave. So, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting around how we just taken those those things out and how we work through that. And uh, I don't know what the answer is, obviously, but uh, it is an interesting question from a, how do we continue to introduce, you know, uh, more of just the random, randomness of life back into the equation and have that be acceptable? I don't, you know, it's an interesting paradox with as we have more information, what we expect. So I have no point to where I was going with that, but I find myself intrigued by that where it, no, probably, that, it probably speaks to a little bit, sorry, Jason, sure. just, it, it speaks to a little bit of just what's your, frankly, what's your kind of outlook in life? I mean, I mean, I mean, what, how much are you willing to you know, take, you know, take chances? You may go back. One of the things that it makes me smile every time I hear, it. in fact, I've got, I got a, a Vincent track in my head around hallucinations <laughs> and swimming pools. And, uh, and, and I look and say, well, as a business owner, uh, if I have one in five customers that gets mad that they come here and they don't have a swimming pool, but it didn't cost me anything to get them here, am I okay that the four were happy? And I think maybe I am. Yeah, and I think that that does lead to this sort of natural degradation of services across the board. Or maybe it's an improvement because, in fact, it's actually worse today, potentially. I don't, I, that's the trick. I think the starting with the idea, whether you're using AI or not, or developers or you know what level of testing we're doing and that kind of thing, starting with the idea of like, these are all experiments in what level, what are the appropriate levels before we would let something go is a probably the way to think about it going forward, especially if you're using AI, I think you'll have to do that, which is again, a big shift. Okay, but on that first point, my, my point was like, I agree with you, but I don't know how that helps because people aren't good at reasoning probabilistically. So even if you say, this is really critical, we have to be what percentage right? What Again, if I'm making a diagnostics on an x-ray that you have cancer or don't have cancer, how good do I have to be? It's a question you have to like explicitly, consciously answer ex ante. Now, to the point, doctors make that mistake every day. The difference is they aren't consciously deciding I'm going to get it wrong this percentage of the time. That's I think that's the hard part. Yeah, I think, and that's the back to the the business process and and you know the change around how we approach these things that has to happen. And I, I do agree. You know, we're not good at it. We'll have to get better at it, but we're we're not today. My other thought, as you know, in thinking about the situation on the text thread, was like, does this change the boundaries around what an application is? Let me explain what I mean by that. Yeah, maybe tell me what the boundaries are today. <laughs> right. Well, today. You might have a system like that, you know, is your website. You might have a system that is your mobile app. You might have a different system that runs like HR. You might have a different system that runs like scheduling for, you know, your restaurant. You might have a different system that's the point of sale. You might have a different system that drives the kitchen. You might have a different system that like does supply chain. If all of these things are, are if, you know, if, if the interface is going to be much more yeah, I, I use the example of like the Star Trek, right? Like how many computers are in Star Trek, right? It's only one, right? They just always ask it, computer, do this. And it doesn't matter mm. what it is, right? And is the the boundary around how we interact with these systems going to change from like, I know specifically I go to this application to do this function 
And that application to do that function kind of change and to be like, hey, I want to do this. And it goes, you know, if something is going to go right in and happen, it's going to have to compose and compile and, and access many different things within, you know, access many different things within the, the corporation and data across many different pieces. Again, we, we got to make that small enough so that that's not, that's an acceptable level of risk and, and we can do those experiments, but you're not going, a person's not going to know all 500 systems in an organization and go be able to say, I want to change this thing in that application, right? So if we're going to go to this citizen developer world, it's going to have to have something, the computer from Star Trek, we'll call it, you know, is essentially what orchestrates all these other smaller pieces and, and components. You know, again, that's a really going to be a really difficult challenge and change for the way organizations organize around how they they do work and budget and 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 who does what. And, and so, for both of those reasons, I think that's why developers aren't going away. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the super app idea is kind of intriguing, right? Like this idea that there will ultimately just be one global interface to do everything. Yeah. Siri or whatever. Skynet. Skynet, Skynet, yes. Siri, yes, exactly. Google. I mean, that's sort of true today, right? You keep you keep seeing consolidation of applications. I think you can go to any major software vendor now, and it's consolidated via a browser. So every Microsoft product is at the same URL. Every Adobe product is at the same URL. And these are all just like sort of native applications. You just go to one place. To your point, today you still click on the specific individual bit. But I know I'm going to Excel versus Outlook. That's right. Yeah, my point. Exactly right. Today, you still click on the individual bit, but those things become more and more coupled. For example, in PowerPoint or in Outlook, you can have an Excel table and have all the Excel functions there and sort of like have data set in Excel and render here and do manipulations over here. Like these lines, the lines are blurring, but you're right. They're still, they're still there. They're, they're there today. And I don't know if y'all saw the latest Google Bard release pretty amazing it it will go if you tell it to go book a flight it will look at your google calendar and not schedule flights when you have conflicts yeah and this is sort of my right. vision of like these personal assistants ultimately right. you don't have to do anything other than give it the objective and it does all of the orchestration behind the scenes to your point right. that thing becomes the universal right application interface yeah. but you how know, is that but again like if you think about the, back to your question of like how, how does that actually impact budgeting in your mind like to me that's actually doesn't change anything, because right? Because budgets we still are have... done by those subsystems, no, right? No, no, budget's no. done for the HR system. Oh, There's yeah. no one, the budget's done for whatever system. No, but yes and no, right? Which is to say, if you have an application, call it, I don't have an example where this actually exists, but it, either way, it doesn't really matter. You have some core system, some core UI that's sort of the front end that everybody interfaces. That has a team and they have functions and capabilities that they want to have in that UI. Oh, Bing is an example. Here's a Bing. Okay, so Bing has a landing page, bing.com, has search bar. Great. Search bar itself is like that whole UI is a team. They're focused on that front end experience. When you type a query, that front end experience calls a different service, a different team who's responsible for predicting the yeah, next I, word. So then you hit enter. There's a different team that, that is responsible for the querying of that and like searching the database. And there's a team that that team's dependent on who's responsible for indexing it and who's also dependent on a team that's crawling the web and so on and so forth. Similarly, when it returns the results, that front-end UI team is responsible for that experience, but they also are responsible for calling the instant answers bit as they introduce BARD, the BARD bit. Effectively, the way you then budget to say, well, the front-end team wants to integrate BARD, or in Bing's case, they want to open it, they want to integrate the chat GPT. Great. That team, chat GPT team, has to go build some functionality, some APIs. They have to get budget to do that. 
the front end team has to get budget to write the UI and integrate and across. So that to me, it seems like it's the same. There would be more dependencies across. It, it's not that way in a normal company. Like normal companies are not Microsoft and Google that build Bing and the and Bard, right? Like normal companies are like the average Fortune 500 company. They don't have one thing that is the interface to everything. They have you use SAP. Mm-hmm. Kevin uses Workday, mm-hmm. right? I work in the in you know. Let's say you're a cell phone provider. Mail room. <laughs> yeah. I, I it's a cell phone provider. I work on the point of sale in the in the store, right? You work on the use the the call center app. You as a salesperson log into Salesforce. Like there is no that there is no that unifying thing in in, in any company. And those things, SAP, Workday, Salesforce point of sale are how things are budgeted. You see this problem today in data. Like the, mm-hmm. you live this problem all the time. Sure. Nobody's responsible for data. We need a chief data officer, you know, that, that like can set strategy and do all these things. It's the same on the interface of the company. Nobody owns that employee experience right today. I agree. But I'm saying like, if you take the end user persona based approach here and you say like, so the largest Fortune 500 is Walmart. There's no doubt somebody at Walmart who's responsible for the mobile app. And their mobile app has a bunch of layers behind it that contact stores and distribution centers and inventory and credit risk and I don't know, all the things they have to do. And then there's a different person who's responsible probably for the website. And it's a different sort of entry point. And there's a different person responsible for the HR tooling and, and the operation tooling, no doubt. And, and your point's right, which is like eventually all those could be collapsed, but probably they don't need to be. Like an employee doesn't necessarily need the same master super app, if you will, that a customer uses, which is the same or different from the one that a logistics company uses, their 3PL uses to get inventory. Now, maybe you end up in a world where each of those sort of gets aggregated up to that level. And then I, as a customer of Walmart, an employee of Credera, uh, whatever, whatever, my app then connects to all of those, and I truly have a super app that does everything, personal, work, et cetera, but we don't have to get there right away, do we? No, but no, we don't have to get there right away. But even in the case of one of those smaller ones, let's, let's just say it's the employee experience app sure. at, at the Walmart. Yeah. Like, all right, well, I want to make a change, right? Like, well, what change do you want to make? And like, which of all of all the downstream systems would have to change? To, to Most of the time, that is a very large number Take a very simple feature. Okay. Like feature is I want to buy online, have it pick pick up in the store. Which of the apps does that affect? Right? The answer is almost all of them. But I think that the way you would prioritize that and budget that, and again, Kevin, you jump in here in any moment. This is more your domain than mine. But like the way you'd prioritize and budget that is that each of the experiences, mobile, web, call center, I don't know idea, whoever wherever you can do that transaction would say, hey, on the backlog of features that I want to go get done, I want to do order online, pick up in store. Great. Mobile might get to right. it first. This is my point, though. That's what I'm saying, right. right? Like, okay, we break it up. It's on your backlog. It's not on my backlog. Why not? Because I don't have budget for it. And so sure, that's what it- I'm saying. If you're going to start doing these experiments where it's like the only way we know if it works right what you're describing is a situation where we assume we know the right answer and each person is going to build their piece and then we'll test it and, and launch it when it's done. If we're going to say, no, no, we're going to try it. We're going to let, let's say 2% of people do it and see if it, if it actually, if that, you know, their average spend or frequency or loyalty goes up, 
like then everyone has to get on the same page and do it all at the same time. I don't think so, right? Like, so let's let's take an example. Otherwise, you end up right back where you are today. Well, let's say that we had this example. Let's say it's buy now and pick up, and we have to have search as part of it. It's not critical to this workflow, but let's just say for whatever reason, search were part of it, and we don't have search today. We have no search functionality. We're like, great, we have to go write our own search algorithm. Perfect, wonderful. My point is that if mobile wants to go do that first, to your point, mobile and web both say, let's say they're separate teams. They both say, hey, we want to do this. Web says, ah, it's below the line for me. I don't have a budget for it. Mobile says, it's above the line for me. I'm doing it. Great. They have to go build out the UI. They have to get with some search team that might be net new, sort of a core services team that other people could leverage later on potentially. And those people say, I don't have budget for it. Well, again, I think this is where you get the typical organizational, you'll have dependencies and you'll have to sort of collectively say, well, I need you. And depending on how your structure is set up, either you do it for them and then push it to them. So you say, look, I don't want to get blocked. So organizations say, great, mobile, you can do that, but we don't have any capacity. So nope. so you build it and then we'll inherit it. Or you need to give me budget to go do it, depending on how you set I, up. I, go ahead. I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm saying that always happens, that all that depends on mapping. And, but it's agreed to like once a year all the things you're going to do and all the things you're going to do and all the things you're going to do so that we go do it. If those things change now week to week to week to week to week, we have to change the way we plan and budget because next week we could decide like, Hey, we gave you the budget to do the back end thing that we talked about in January, but we're not doing that anymore. Go give your money to those people. Cause now we're going to be trying a different experiment over and that's going to have to change that system over there. That does not happen today. Good thing that developers are going away. So we don't have to have this issue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think this problem happens in today. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to, I don't, we're not going to figure out today with the solution to that, but I think it to me, it's a capacity problem. You know, how you work through it, how do you allocate through that? I mean, I, I think that this problem exists, uh, in different formats today, and we'll have to continue to work through that. But it's an interesting question, what you said, Vincent, a second ago around how does it change potentially how you group things together within your organization, you know, yeah, and how that may then ultimately align into the budgets and the systems and the tools that support those different uh, uh, desired outcomes. And so, yeah, that may be part of what the evolution of this becomes, so you can be able to see that. It also might be that uh, the systems become just so integrated into everything that we do that uh, you know the whole concept of a IT department or something like that that's managing them is just really, it's just that is everything is an IT company. Maybe what you'd see today in a Google or Microsoft, they've been operating like that way, and we see that continue to manifest itself out in all the rest yeah, of the Yeah, and that, that's kind of what I'm getting around, around the boundaries of what the system is. Like today, if you went into Google, a Google developer can go change anything, right, in any system. Like again, that is not that way in most companies. Like in most companies, I I can change the one system in the group I'm assigned to. Yeah, I I hear you. I I agree that look, if you take a legacy non-native company, non-digital native company today, there's a lot of process change that has to happen. I guess my point is that I think by leveraging what we've learned from digital native companies, I think you can solve almost everything we've talked about. Now, I I agree there's still some more changes you have to deal with conceptually. Um, I don't know that there's a golden answer here. This is the tension that you naturally have of just how fast do I want to go versus how res- how resistant am I to, to double spending? That's the core tension that you have. If you want to go really fast and you want everything to be very loosely coupled, and again, the mobile team can go build a whole new backend service if they want to. Right. Now that's very inefficient from a cost, holistic cost, because other people need that same service and they didn't build it for anybody else. On the other hand, if you have truly centralized, only one team can touch that backend system, then you naturally move very slow. I suspect that what you end up with is is a place where it depends, as always, because that's always the answer <laughs> in consulting, back to your first answer. 
Um, but you basically end up breaking things down to get to some level of impedance matching as opposed to mismatching here um, for the pieces that touch a lot. And then you have as you get farther and farther away, so again, internal HR systems different from customer e-commerce type solutions, those two can be on very different impedances. It's okay. It doesn't actually matter because you don't need the same sort of user, same sort of function, generally speaking. That's okay. Everything centered around that customer buy flow, for example, probably has to be very low impedance mismatch. It'd be very close to the same. Um, and so again, that probably means you cluster your organization in a way that facilitates that to be very similar. Well, that that's the domain-driven design idea. And I, I think it is true, but I think what we're seeing is like a lot of it starts to break down. Like with more and more advanced user, like I want my, I'm an employee, you know, uh, I'm an employee at an airline and therefore I can book standby for free. Sure. Right. And so those domains all of a sudden have a crisscross. Like, and, um, I agree. And so I agree that like a lot of the digital native companies like, you know, Google, Microsoft, you know, who's kind of evolved its way into a digital native company wasn't originally, I don't think, but you know, they, they do have a lot of, good practices and patterns that address a lot of this. Like, I just think most companies don't operate that way. And it's a big shift. And I, I think what my, my main point was, it is not a technology shift. That's what kind of what I was getting at with you know, Kevin. It's like, it's a shift in the way they, there is a technology change, I guess I should say, in the way we design, build, manage, and deploy systems and test them specifically and specify them. Yes, that is, but that has more impact outside of development. It has impact inside development. But it has more outside development in, in like things like budgeting, planning, sales, commitments, those kind of things. And I see those things as the limiting factor, not the technology shift. Basis of my 25-plus uh, year consulting careers, it's all about people. And I think that's what we were saying, right? I mean, at the end of the day that it's, I mean, I completely agree with you that almost everything we do is ultimately around human capital, human capital constraints, possibilities, and and uh, technology and machines and are just the tools that all work through that. So, so developers go away so we don't have the human problem anymore. Until, no? you, until no? the machines are all the humans. Then, okay. then, yeah, I think then, Elon Musk showed us that, uh, yeah. yeah, that doesn't actually yeah. work out the way you imagine it would working out. I guess that's a, that's a good point. And I guess my question to you then, Kevin, is, are there any sort of gotchas that people need to watch out for if they begin this, at least thinking through this evolution that we know just from a change management, human sort of centered design perspective that, hey, this is going to be a differentiator for you. This is going to be a competitive advantage for you. This is really important. But anything like that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you guys can cut off the pregnant pause. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think that to me, it's maybe more about in some of these areas, I think it's less about competitive advantages around just making sure that you're keeping up. Yeah. And I think and if we don't, you know, these are some of these things around if you don't adopt and try to figure out how this is going to impact how you currently do your business, that it's going to be, you're going to be left behind. And again, I think that's probably part of your normal risk management for companies in general. There's there's probably certain things that are going to be, uh, you know, not going to be impacted by this, but very few. I mean, I think medicine's an actually a really interesting example of that, right? I and mean, you think about is we're seeing just the efficacy of machines and machine learning when it comes to ER, you know, definitely radiology, FMLs like that. I mean, you would have thought at some point there's always going to be a human that was going to be driving those decisions. And we're finding really rapidly that that's not the best case. And so, so I think it's really around how do you continue to change? And so these are themes as, as old as time, just but how you work through that and having an organization that continues to adopt that. And then I also think of an organization that is encourages your employees to embrace the change and the growth and how it's going to make your job better and make your role better. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that with the fear of AI today that it's being driven from, well, I'm going to lose my job or it's going to do something this. And it's all really been driven by the negative components of it versus saying, 
how cool is it going to be what you're going to be able to get to do or what you can do more of or be able to apply your your, your creative and your passions to, to an application that's different. Because, I mean, do we really want to book a flight? Do we really, is it pretty cool that we can do that and uh, and do that through you know, more automated means? And so I'm definitely an optimist in that. And I think the more that companies embrace that and have their employees think that way, uh, the better. Yeah, no, I think it's great. And it, that point of risk aversion that just humans naturally experience losses at twice what they experience gains, I think, is a, is a good observation. And frankly, in, at least in the U.S. at this day and age, especially if you're in technology, you have a lot. And conceptually, you have a lot to lose, quote unquote. And we've lost some of that appetite, broadly speaking, for risk because we have so much to lose perception-wise. And, and it will come back to, I think, there is an existential moment for organizations. If they don't adopt this, they don't evaluate how will this impact my business, suddenly the bar to entering a lot of these industries to building technology has gone to near zero. And so I think it's a really critical moment to evaluate organizationally, what is our risk tolerance? Is it high enough? Slightly different tangent, maybe the last statement, but I think it's one of the reasons why, why do I think the, you know, the moonshot, you know, we keep on going back to that, not only in this podcast, but just in society is what was so driven by you know, Kennedy's vision is the fact that it was something that was seen as like, this is impossible to even envision how we could possibly get this done. And then, and to go from the idea that we're not flying out of our atmosphere till we've landed somewhere on the moon and back in seven years. And you think about in the context today, we've been talking about self-driving cars for twice that long. And we are probably still twice that long before it really is going to happen at a, at a mass scale. And so, and so I think it's just really interesting around where have we become a society now as it's sped up to where are we willing to, what is risk? What is it willing to do? What's the failure rate? Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it is rhyming around, are we willing to take risk? We're, we're incentivized in many areas of our life to look for someone else to be held responsible. And so I think that that's a real, these are societal questions that are not about machines, not about technology, but ultimately about what, how, what it means to, to live and interact and, and then, you know, way outside the scope of this podcast. But I think it's a really interesting theme of how they all come back together and run together. Well, I think that's a great point because, again, if it's been months at least since I thought my car was going to kill me in full self-drive mode, which I use all the time. Like, it's actually, it really is phenomenal. It really is a great job. Is it perfect in every scenario? No, it's not. But it's insanely good. And to your point, we're still so far from that being broadly accepted. And that's what's so interesting about Elon as just a human, as a creator conceptually. He takes those impossible challenges. The idea that we could take a rocket, launch it, and have it land on its own with no human control on a floating ship in the middle of the ocean was a joke. I mean, it was just like laughing stock, and he's accomplished it. It's, it's amazing what human ingenuity can do if we just are willing to accept some risk that we have somehow taken out of the system, broadly speaking. Jason, uh, any closing thoughts from you, my friend? No, I think uh, <laughs> developers are gone. See you later. You don't. I was going to go developers unite. <laughs> oh, okay, I, 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 I agree. There's a lot of different people issues here, and and those are the the long pole in the tent, not the technical ones. And and so for that reason, developers won't go away anytime soon. <laughs> Hashtag Kevin's problem, not mine. Got it. Fair enough. Okay. Well, thank you guys for joining. I think actually me not preparing worked out wonderfully. So thank you for carrying your weight today. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You guys did great, of course, even with random questions that were kind of tough on the spot. For our listeners, thank you for enduring this one. I actually think it was really fascinating and I hope you did too. For those that would like to learn more, please visit the insights page at Cordero.com. Again, thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us again. Bye-bye.